how blessed an occasion it is on this Lord's Day morning to be able to assemble and to do so with the blessing and provision of God. As was mentioned in our prayer, how excited we are to be able to worship in spirit and in truth, to borrow the demand of the Lord in John 4, 24. And as we give thought to this opportunity to allow the Word of God to challenge us, to touch us, to lead us in the pathways of life everlasting over the next few moments, I would encourage you to visit with me again that passage in Matthew 18. We'll be using that at various times in the particular lesson over the next few moments this morning. Become as little children. Perhaps some introductory thoughts could be in order to marvel in our minds about the nature of what an interesting commandment that might be. I'm sure we're all well aware that the Bible lists before all who are adults and parents the obligation to instruct and to teach and to set before youngsters the right example of godliness and righteousness. And none of us that are wise will shirk that responsibility or duty, of course. And quite often that kind of idea is allowed to reach an extreme in which some might think, well, there is nothing that a child can possibly instruct or teach because after all, they are inexperienced, they are not filled with wisdom, they do not have years of practical application. It's viewed then by some that the adult always has the right answer, that an adult always has the right understanding, that an adult always has the proper approach. But that flies in the face, doesn't it, of part of what we read just a moment ago. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, we remember on this occasion the Lord turned that logic around. He said, Except you become as little children, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. There is then a sense in which little children may have it right. There is a sense then in which in some ways a young child may have a purer, better understanding and application than some of us that are older. What are some of the ways that the Bible points that out to us? What are some passages that challenge us to perhaps look with care at what a, ch a young child may be or do and perhaps seek to imitate? As you close that slide with me, you'll notice these are from the words of the Master himself. This was not any philosopher of the ancient era. It wasn't simply someone who was skilled in presentation. This was a message from heaven. I would invite you for the next few moments then with me this morning to give thought to what are some ways in the Bible that we are urged to imitate a child. As we study that and look at it in some detail and care, we'll find that there are many ways in which they truly can be master teachers to you and me even, though we may be far older than they. Why don't we begin with the very context of the passage before us in Matthew chapter 18. As you and I set the stage for that question that the disciples asked of the Lord, we shall find that there was a very clear subject in mind. It was the matter of greatness and humility. As you look at the way this particular passage is put before us, remember Mark as well as Luke have some of the same ideas, and they shed some light on the circumstances that led to the question. You may notice that Jesus and the disciples were journeying toward the city of Capernaum. And when they arrived, Jesus Himself, He was able to read their thoughts, and He asked them, What were you talking about in the way? Now Jesus knew exactly what they were talking about, but it was an opportunity to bring that topic into light and to discuss very carefully what the subject was. I would ask you to notice, when they arrived, that takes us back to Matthew 18. 
At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus used that opportunity to put a tremendous lesson before them. Along the way, they had been discussing, Who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who among us will occupy the highest echelons and the highest plateaus? Who, in fact, shall be the most influential? Who will be the greatest in the kingdom? When Jesus asked that of them, of course, you'll notice, they have ultimately asked Him this notable question in verse number 1. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It is still true, isn't it, that so often the mind of men and women moves toward greatness. What we have in terms of position and what we often are blessed to enjoy in terms of influence is not satisfactory. We like greatness. We like more. These disciples ask of Jesus, Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Isn't it amazing the way Jesus could answer a question? Isn't it phenomenal the way He could teach a timeless and unforgettable lesson? On this occasion, He simply brought a little child. Can you imagine that here in some way, perhaps in the vicinity, was a young child playing? Jesus brought that child, set him right down in the midst of these learned apostles, these disciples, and He made this comment. Verily I say unto you, verse 3, Except ye be converted... And become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, this little child in some way has it right. The attributes of this little child in some way are properly descriptive of those who will enter into the kingdom. And unless those attributes are enjoyed, and unless those attributes are exhibited, entrance will not be permitted. It is amazing Jesus used the word accept. That is frequently employed in the Scriptures as you and I employ it today as an absolute exclusiveness in the sense that unless that attribute is mentioned, then the reward is absolutely out of the question. Verse number 4 goes on to say, "...whosoever therefore shall humble themselves, himself as this little child, the same as greatest in the kingdom of heaven." At least for the time being, in this context, the attribute of the little child that was so noteworthy was humility. For after all, that's what Jesus mentioned in the next verse, wasn't it? For those reasons, maybe these ideas would then well be in order. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, the humility of a child is, is discussed. I'm sure all of us at one time or another have witnessed and watched and been impressed by. Often as you see a young child, often those just before they get old enough to enter into kindergarten, as they play one with another, there's often such a marked observance of humility. They just enjoy playing together. It doesn't matter who brought the toy. They just enjoy being able to share it and enjoy the fun that comes along with it. It's not so much at those younger ages, me versus yours. Now, in some children, I suppose that's true. But humility was highlighted on this occasion, wasn't it? 
This isn't the only passage in Scripture that lifts high the humility of a child. Didn't David come in in Psalm 131, verses 1 and 2? On that occasion, highlighting the very words of the God of heaven Himself to the effect that, I will humble myself as this child that's been weaned. And he even knew on that occasion about the blessedness and the desire of God toward that matter of humility. As you notice furthermore, the humility of a child is so often described as an unpretentious thing, isn't it? They often don't put on airs. They're not haughty or arrogant. A young child will often be painfully honest. Maybe there'll be more to say about that as we transition to the next couple of slides. But notice just a few passages that encourage you and I toward the matter of humility. It's found really throughout the sacred pages of the Bible, isn't it? In Romans 12, verse number 3, Paul to that congregation very clearly said, I will not think of myself more highly than I ought to think. In other words, the very attribute of arrogance is what is condemned. And they in Rome were admonished never ever to haughtily and with airs lift oneself up beyond what one ought to be. In Colossians 1 or rather 1 Corinthians 1.29, on that first occasion of that first Corinthian letter, Paul to those individuals said that no flesh should glory in his sight. The very time you and I think that we're in position to glory, we have serious need for, for reflection. No flesh has any reason to glory in the sight of God. We're all just humble servants in His sight at best. As you think about that passage, I would ask you to reflect on James 4 verse number 10 for just a moment. There's an explicit commandment and it says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He shall lift you up. It so often causes issues and problems when we fail to be humble. How often has the church suffered beneath the burden of some who would not bend their stubborn will to the humility demanded in the Bible? Colossians 3 verse 12 simply says, You and I must have both meekness and humbleness of mind. Become as little children. Surely as we think about the humility of a child, maybe that makes us wonder about other attributes that a child might possess that you and I too are admonished to imitate. You'll notice on this next slide we might well consider yet another one. This time the topic of joy. Have you ever just witnessed a few young children playing with one another and the inner joy that seems to characterize their life? They play. Sometimes as you drive along and perhaps there's a preschool nearby and you see in the distance these children inside the fence, of course, for their own safety, but they are so frivolously considering the play opportunity that's before them and the joy that is characteristic of that activity. May I ask you to think for just a moment about joy as it relates to Christianity and the joy that ought to characterize your life and mine. It might well be fair to notice that this concept of joy attaches in a very powerful way to the concepts of delight and gladness. But it does so seemingly from a very foundational way. It's a beautiful concept, isn't it? 
It may well be a person might be happy for a short amount of time, but joy is a description that really is characteristic of that person's life, not just in those times that might lead to smiles and happiness, but to all other times in life too. We might ask each other personally our own questions. How joyous are you and how joyous am I? As you'll notice immediately, those blessings of joy the Bible teaches should be expressible even in those times of affliction and even in those times of difficulty and persecution. It is to that way I would invite you to consider texts like 2 Corinthians 8 verse 2 where on that occasion even, Paul says, in a great trial of affliction, they nonetheless enjoy contributed not just out of the pocketbook but first of their own selves. There were individuals of whom Paul spoke that were suffering great afflictions, and yet Paul said they were joyous. How joyous are you and I? Maybe that attribute of joy should take us back to what is it that produces joy. What reason have we to be joyous? I would ask you to notice, joyousness in the New Testament seemingly is attached directly to obedience and faithful at that to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember Paul and Silas, don't you? Who themselves on the second missionary journey found themselves in a dungeon, in a prison, in chains in the city of Philippi. And yet at midnight, they were singing praises unto God and praying. Apparently, appreciative of the fact there was a far grander reality than where they currently were bound. And they were joyous at the thought that they were simple servants of His and thankful to be able to serve Him in the way they could. Are you and I joyous and thankful for the talents He has given us? And are we happy and excited to use them to His glory and good? Do we pray to Him that He might bless us with opportunities to utilize them? Talk about joy. You might notice that in light of those things, in 1 Peter 1 verses 8 and 9, there is a description of those who again were under great duress and yet that they might with joy unspeakable serve unto God. That's a fantastic amount of joy, isn't it? Joy so rich and so deep it's unspeakable. Maybe the last thought on that slide would be this one. A number of passages encouraging us to be joyous. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Philippians 4 verse 4. The shortest verse in the New Testament, at least in Greek, is 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 16. Two words, rejoice evermore. How well does my life and yours set an example of rejoicing evermore? Maybe one last consideration would be verse 13 of 1 Peter 4. One final time in the midst of a set of circumstances that certainly on many occasions were challenging, Peter nonetheless could write about the joy characteristic of those that were faithful servants of the Lord. This might be a fair time then to say, if you and I are not a faithful servant of the Lord, there's really no ultimate reason for joy. Because after all, you and I are separated from the very one who is the source of that joy. And furthermore, if our life should end in this state, we're forever lost. And there certainly will be no joy then. Oh, how you and I might with seriousness then seek, perhaps as a little child, to appreciate the opportunity to understand that casting all your cares on Him, for He careth for you. 
1 Peter 5 or 7. A little child has not reached the age of knowing about bills and health problems and medical issues and the other matters that can so often cloud the issues of life. But you and I know that we, if we're faithful Christians, reside in the hands of one far greater than we who can take care of all those issues and problems and who's promised, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6. We have every reason then to be joyous, do we not? A little child, whether it be in joy or whether it be in humility, maybe there are other attributes worthy of our attention as well. What if we give some thought to innocence? I'm sure that's likely one of the first characteristics that we consider when a little child is mentioned. How pure, how innocent so uncontaminated with the, the ugliness and the evil that seems so rampant in this world, the pure and sweetness of a little child. Why don't you and I think about innocence for just a moment? This might be a fair opportunity to make note a child is not born in sin, despite our Calvinistic friends. There are those in our world who fully believe that a child is born lost, born contaminated with all the sins, not only of his own mother, but yea, even of generations and generations past. Nothing could be further from biblical teaching than that. A child, you and I appreciate, does not fit definitions like these. In 1 John 3 verse 4, Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is committing something that is in violation of the law of God. Sin is not inherited. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever speak about sin being inherited. Sin is due to one's own failures and one's own choices. A little baby cannot make those choices. It doesn't know the basis of wrong and right from which to make such choices. No wonder it was said in Ezekiel 28.15, Concerning the king of Tyre, Thou wast perfect in all thy ways from the day thou wast created until iniquity was found in thine heart. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Here's an ancient pagan ruler, and yet he says you were perfect in all your ways until you chose to sin, until you chose to disobey God. And so when you and I think about a baby entering into this world, how innocent... No sin in on that baby at all. Nothing that would separate that individual from the God that made him. Surely in light of that innocence, you could appreciate in Matthew 19, verses 13 and 14, very next chapter after the one in which we're reading this morning, Jesus said, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now might we say, if our Calvinistic friends are right, could Jesus there have been possibly saying, heaven's full of little sinners? Surely that's not what the Lord meant. For we know again the Scriptures do not teach any such thing. But children are innocent, and they're sinless, and they're pure. And in that purity and in that sinlessness, you'll notice that there is a marked honesty, often characteristic of a young child. They'll tell you exactly the way it is. If you don't want something told, better not do it in front of a little child. They'll tell it to anybody that asks them. They'll frankly and very openly, because there's nothing to hide. They see no issue or problem with it, and that's rather interesting, isn't it? 
Sometimes as older ones, we conceal things, we hide things, we cover things up, and we conceal that that's the proper approach. But a child in innocency recognizes the truth is the truth, and there's no reason to cover it up or hide it or change it or stretch it or bend it or sometimes what humans like to do to it. Surely in light of all those things, we remember the admonition that Paul gave in Romans 12, 17. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. That was told to adults like you and me, wasn't it? To strive for honesty and honorableness and to strive, of course, for an appreciation of truth as God would have us to understand it. In 2 Corinthians 8, 21, almost that same statement is found again. Maybe in light of all those things, that takes us to another way that you and I can look with such sweetness upon a child. Because a child has none of that sin that we mentioned earlier, you and I know the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. And we understand that that attribute of sin is what invariably leads to it, James 1, 15. However, without that sin, consider the pure innocence then of a young child, one who is able to appreciate a harmony with the things of God. There's no sin yet to separate him from God. What a great thing to consider. No wonder Jesus said, we need to be like little children. You and I should strive for that innocence, that joy, and that humility of which you and I have spoken this morning. As you and I consider that innocence... No wonder the Bible frequently makes mention of that attribute of purity and innocence. In Matthew 5 verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you and I ever expect to entertain the hope of seeing God, purity is an essential ingredient, isn't it? In in Psalm 24 verse number 4, in the days of the Old Testament, David lifted so highly the consideration that Purity of heart and hands is demanded by those that God would find pleasing. Innocence. No wonder that slide closes like this. We understand so well, do we not, that we long for, yearn for, and look for an abode wherein dwelleth righteousness, new heavens and a new earth, 2 Peter 3, verses 11 and following. And yet in that new heaven and earth, there is nothing that defiles. There is no sin. There is no rebellion against God. There is no transgression or violation of His will. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6, verses 9 and following, as He prayed that very memorable model prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. He went on to say, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. It would appear that God's will at this point is thoroughly and entirely and completely followed in heaven. No wonder there's great innocence there, great purity there. You and I look forward in heaven to being in that same location. As we close that slide, haven't we then highlighted that we too should desire to be innocent and joyous and humble just as a child? But a child has even more attributes that are worthy of our consideration as well. Let us consider for a moment the notion of receptiveness, the willingness to be instructed. As we begin that slide at the top, who among us hasn't witnessed it? Or maybe you can even remember it in your life. Dad is 
about to undertake a task outside, and that little boy, Dad, can I help? Dad, can I go? Of all places, he wants to be right there watching and learning and listening and assisting in any way possible. When mom is also involving herself in some chore or task, again, a little boy or girl just wants to be right there listening, instruct, being instructed, observing what's taking place. And quite often when they reach the time that they can talk and ask questions, what can I do? Can I stir? Dad, can I hand you the wrench? They want to be involved and they want to be a part of that which takes place. And not only that, when Dad does give instructions, son, you turn the wrench this way to tighten it, they're all ears. When Mom says, you stir it this way in order to add the greatest flavor, the little girl can't, will never forget that lesson for a lifetime. A child is so often so instructable. They are willing to listen. They're unpretentious in that, never thinking, I already know this. They're so happy to learn. They're so excited to have, take in some new information. What about the matter of receptiveness? Isn't it true the Bible encourages you and I to be exactly like that same way? To have an insatiable appetite for learning the things of God and appreciating that which is His will? I would call to your attention texts like Proverbs 4, verse 13, and Proverbs 23, verse 23, and Proverbs 12, verse 1, all of which are stated, the highlight, I shall be instructed by thy word. As that attribute of encouraging us to be instructable, doesn't that paint a very different picture to what some adults become? Some individuals, and you and I have, have dealt with them, they already think they know everything and they are not going to be taught by you or me no matter what. That's a, sad, that's a sad condition, isn't it? Whereas a child is so ready to listen, so ready to appreciate that which is said and to learn from it. No wonder this matter of encouraging instruction finds its opposite in Jeremiah 17. In verse 23 of that chapter, we find the God of heaven through Jeremiah affirming, This people will not listen and learn from me. They've stopped their ears. They, are, they were described in a way that was very sad. Very, very sad indeed. Maybe as you close that slide with me, you'll notice how often a child not only is willing to be instructed and to listen, but they lift that instruction to the height of imitation. Many a young boy wants to be nothing except exactly like Dad. Isn't that interesting? I want to grow tall and strong like Dad does. I want to be able to do what Dad can do. And a little girl wants to be exactly like Mom. I make those statements because it's often true, isn't it? Maybe you remember it in your life or you've witnessed it in the lives of youngsters. Imitation. Wasn't it Paul who in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 said, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. That admonition for you and I to imitate, none other, of course, than the Jesus, the Master Himself. We need to then have a heart willing to listen and willing to learn and willing to, in fact, be disciplined. There are times I'm mistaken. Do I defensively then refuse any opportunity of constructive criticism of others? Do I pretend I know it all? If so, I need a heart correction. 
And I need to rethink being more like a child, willing to hear what someone else might say that could help me. We remember in Matthew chapter 7, there was a description as that chapter began about an individual who had a beam and a log in his eye. And there was another that had a speck in his eye. And the one that had that log and beam tried so hard, let me get that speck out of your eye. When the person, of course, was afflicted with the great problems and difficulties of his own, but he thought he could help the other. Jesus said the first order of business is get the log out of your own eye. And then you can see clearly to help take care of that speck in somebody else's. Being willing to be instructed. As you close that slide with me, how often the Scriptures, especially the Psalms and the Proverbs of the Old Testament, put before you and me the demand of instruction. In Psalm 119, verses 12, 33, 64, and others, we have statements that tell us very clearly about the nature of being willing to learn and listen to that which God has to say. It may well be, in light of all those things, our lesson races to one final thought. One final consideration is this one. The attribute of forgiveness. I'm sure again we've each witnessed it in a young child. As they're playing on a playground or as they're involving themselves in some activity, one of them says something or takes a toy that belongs to another, and for the moment there's a tear or two, five minutes later you would never have known it. They seemingly are able to forgive, to make up, to enjoy the opportunity of play and association again. They don't hold timeless grudges, it seems. Remember, Jesus said, be like little children. Forgiveness is surely one of the most challenging things as we grow older, isn't it? But He hurt me. He took the promotion that was mine. He got the raise that belonged to me, and I'll never forget it. Those might be words that we would never verbally say, but they're thoughts that rest on our mind. But they seem not to be characteristic of a young child. Oh, how much the Scriptures have to say about forgiveness. As we develop that point somewhat briefly, we remember that Jesus, not only on this occasion, but many other times, commented, as in Luke 17, verse number 3, if thy brother sin against thee, and if he repent, forgive him. That's a commandment, isn't it? If he repent, forgive him. Jesus said nothing about conditionally forgiving him, hold a grudge for a while to make him learn his lesson. That was not anything near what the Master said. He said, if he repents, forgive him. On one occasion, later in this same 18th chapter of Matthew, there was a question, if my brother sinned against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times? Jesus said, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. And it would appear the apostles were shocked by the Master's reply. And then Jesus proceeded to tell a parable in which we find an individual, a king, who himself forgave one of such a tremendous debt. But yet that same one wouldn't go and forgive a brother of a piddly little amount. Ultimately, that king reprimanded the servant because he was unwilling to be forgiving himself. And Jesus ended that whole parable by saying, Go and do thou likewise. Forgiveness like a child. Isn't it interesting to think about, again, a child seemingly doesn't hold long-term grudges, 
doesn't seemingly allow this to fester to the point of a long-term associated problem. The Bible encourages us as we appreciate this interesting thought. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Jesus, right after that model prayer we mentioned earlier, He made this statement. God won't forgive us unless we forgive our brothers. That puts your forgiveness and mine on a conditional level. If we're unwilling to forgive others, God won't forgive us. But He says if we will forgive them, then God will also forgive us when we, of course, meet the other conditions of forgiveness. How forgiving are you and how forgiving am I? Maybe we need to remember time and again, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. As we close that slide, you'll notice that we're admonished in Ephesians 4.32, to ever remember this statement. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. May I suggest that sometimes we as adults do have the instruction that children need, but as we've learned this morning, there are times when we can learn a great deal from a child. Some of the things we can learn are these. Humility and joy and innocence, and as we close the lesson, the willingness to forgive and the willingness to be instructed. Today, the plan of salvation reads like this, and it's not simply an interpretation that you and I might put upon it. This is what heaven revealed. If you and I wish to be right with God, we must believe Jesus to be the Son of God, and we must repent of our sins, and we must confess His name in the hearing of others, and we must be baptized for the remission of our sins. We need to have a nation of people, and yea, a world of people willing to hear that and to follow it, to be instructed by what God has to say. And surely we need innocence, a striving to be joyous, an appreciation of humility, and a willingness to forgive. If today you find yourself separated from these attributes, Jesus would encourage you to become more like a little child. If you need to come forward today asking for rededication and prayers or forgiveness, we'd be delighted to pray with you and for you to, in fact, pray that God would fill your heart with an attribute of some of these things we've learned from a child today. If we could be of any help to you, we would urge you to come. Brother Adam has chosen this song of encouragement. This would be a convenient time, and if we could be of help, why not now? Well, together we stand and sing.